Welcome back. It's the Joel Natale program here, and Adam Q. Fraze is holding the reins as we uh, as we go through uh, a brand new week here. Uh, and happy July uh, to everyone. So glad to have on the the phone with us here the athletic director for Cathedral Prep and Villa Maria Academy, Bill Flanagan. Hey, Bill. Hey, guys. Appreciate you uh, having me here today. All righty. Well, we, we want to kind of get a perspective from someone on the ground level. You know, I mean, I mean, I don't know how many sports you manage between, uh, you know, uh, the girls and the boys. But uh, first off, let's let's get get our, our folks introduced to you. Um, did you grow up here in Erie, Bill? Uh, you, you know, what's your how did you come up? Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, I. Uh... I'm a 1987 graduate of prep, um, went to St. Bonaventure, uh, and was actually in, uh, in your field for about nine years. Uh, my first job out of college was at a, uh, very small place in the middle of nowhere that has since, uh, mushroomed into, um, a much larger group. And that was, um, ESPN up yeah. in Bristol, Connecticut. Wow. So I stayed in uh, communications uh, in the uh, television and radio field until I took uh, the director of athletics position in uh, 2000. So I'm starting my 20th year with prep, and uh, I've spent uh, roughly half of that also with Villa and Tow uh, when we merged about a decade ago. And uh, the... the uh the uh, job of athletic director, explain it to, you know, a lot of people know what a coach does, but what does an AD do? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, it, uh, there's a litany of, uh, of items. Uh, you know, the, the cliff note version is probably that, you know, you're managing uh, and overseeing all sports uh, and athletic teams. that consists of uh, 27. Um, you're scheduling you're hiring, you're arranging travel, you're overseeing, evaluating, uh, making sure that uh, student athletes are compliant from uh, an academic eligibility standpoint. So there's quite an array of uh, of pieces that are involved with that. Uh, And really compared to when I started so many years ago, the the field and the position has, really completely changed that you know, it just seems like, and, and this isn't a, a prep or villa issue. It's just the, the issue of the, of the career that um, more responsibility, more expectation, more um, add-ons to the job have been placed um, in this capacity for all athletic directors. So it's, uh, it's certainly a, a continuing challenge, but uh one I enjoy and, and continue to go uh, enjoy uh, going to work every day and, and uh, trying to, um, you know, do some positive things there. You know, it's it, it just a just a non-athletic observation, but it seems like there's been a, a, a whole lot more professionalism put into the into the position. It used to be one of those things. Hey, we're going to tag it on to a gym teacher or some sports minded teacher on, you know, on staff at a school. And now it's like, you know, there's just so many. Uh, rules and regulations and so many things to deal with. It, it really is much more of a full-time job, isn't it? I think that's a great point. I, I, I know there are fewer and fewer people that, uh, in positions that treat it as a, as a part-time 
slot. I don't really know how you could in this day and age with everything going on. Uh, I think there was quite a bit of, um, you could probably say, uh, you know, from the college analogy, kind of a, a sports information tone to it when we started. Um, and when people started, you know, say 20 years ago, uh, that has completely evolved. It's still part of the process. But uh, to your point, there are just so many more um, things that are involved and, and are entailed in the job. And, you know, with, with social media being where it is right now, uh, and I'll tread lately on that for a second, I, I just think every school, as they should, is, is trying to promote their product, um, their name, and that takes obviously a lot more time and energy and resources, and that and that's a good thing. You want to be able to send as many things out to promote your student athletes, your coaches, um, your teams. But again, that's that's more time, and um, so I think the evolution of the position has has clearly changed uh, and continues really to evolve with each passing year. Hey, Bill, one of the other things that if, as if what you're doing now is not enough, you yeah. also have another organization uh, by which you're affiliated, and that's the PIAA as secretary. Explain what the PIAA is and your role in that organization. Well, um, you know, the, the PIAA, uh, you know, for uh, basically roughly about 100 years, has been uh, the overseer of high school athletics. Um, within the PIAA, there are 12 separate districts. We emanate up here in, in this area uh, from District 10. Within District 10, um, there then is uh, an oversee framework that consists of a chairman, uh, a vice chairman, a secretary, and a treasurer that basically try to implement as best as possible, um, the rules and regulations and oversee for PIAA the inner workings of, of District 10. Hopefully that, that makes sense uh, as best as, uh, as I can come up with. Sure. Because it is, I know to try to drill it down in, in such a short amount of time is, is not easy, but that, that is basically where uh, and what District 10 does as uh, – as an overseer, again, of, of PIAA rules and trying to make sure as, as a subsidiary of them that uh, those rules are enacted, enforced, and uh, properly navigated uh, within our little uh, area here that's known as District 10. And there's like a legislative process, right, especially when there's rule changes or there there is some kind of a challenge or some kind of – you know, uh, maybe it's not legislative, maybe it's more judicial, but maybe it's both. I mean, there's a lot of power in the PIAA, isn't there? There is. I mean, their, uh, you know, their board of directors is, uh, is comprised of, you know, around 30 different people that are uh, charged with, with making changes to, uh, to the rules and, and regulations that, that govern our state and govern high school athletics. It's our job here at, at District 10. I mean, we, we're not going to, we don't have the ability and or power to, uh, you know, to make a, a wide ranging change that say would be above the grounds of, of PIAA. It's our job to message those changes to make sure that uh, they're being followed. While at the same time, we are able 
as a district as as the other 12 districts or other 11 districts are, are permitted to um, to make slight uh, variances and, and changes with uh, with how things are are done here um, it's a it's a real good group to work with it's people that um, are really only interested in uh, bettering the high school experience for young men and women uh, I don't I think there are very uh, uh, you know there's no self-serving interest there I think everyone sees the bigger picture and the overall and it's a real good group to be a part of now um, there's there's definitely been some prevailing issues that you let's let's take let's let's put the ad hat on for a second as an as an athletic director and and again maybe we need to provide some background because private schools were not always part of the PIAA they kind of entered what uh, what in the late sixties is that is that accurate or yeah, early seventies. Early seventies. Okay, That's correct. So, so you know, they were invited in, and again, it probably made things a bit more competitive for the for the teams. Um, but uh, again, as a as an AD for for a parochial private school, what's the, kind of what's the one of the biggest challenges that you have um, as, as you kind of navigate this competitive process? Uh, I mean, there's. Uh... It's a, um, you know, it's an interesting situation in, in terms of how overall things have, have changed the last, um, the last few years. To, to your point, private schools were, were brought in almost 50 years ago, but also, you know, remember uh, around, I think less than 10 years ago, right in that time frame, uh, the Philadelphia schools were brought in. So yeah, they added two districts. Yeah, they they did, but it, it wasn't necessarily um, the the districts had had previously existed in terms of um, outlying counties. But when you're bringing in literally the city of Philadelphia, um, which you know I haven't seen the a recent census, but you're talking what a, a top five. Uh, city in the country in yeah. terms of population that changes the dynamic quite a bit so the the state organization had run for so many years without the city being involved they were their own entity ran their own championships and um, you know they were able to bring in first the, the public schools from the city of Philadelphia and then the the private charter schools from the city of Philadelphia, and that has clearly changed uh, the makeup of the state quite a bit. Where we can basically say, with um, very few exceptions, that the entire state is now under one leadership group. It's a big change. Yeah, yeah. It, has it has it made a change on the field though? Because it's not like. Uh, again, maybe I'm not cl- watching it close enough, but it doesn't seem like there's that much domination. I and mean, again, they, they would be the, uh, you know, they would be the big, the big influence in this, but nece- not necessarily when it comes to like state championships or, you know, um, you know, defeating all comers. It, it, you know, there's, it still seems competitive. You still have a, you know, uh, a District 10 team that could go all the way to states. You still have Whippeal teams that, that can do very well. And, you know, scranton Wilkesbury teams that, that do well. And, of course, you know, the perennial Central Bucks West or, or you know, or so on. Uh, speak to that. 
Yeah, I think uh, for the most point, you're you're correct. Uh, but if you drill down and look at probably the last 10 years in particular in, in basketball, Philadelphia's um, footprint on those championships is much, much more prevalent. Um, you will see that at, at all levels, public, private. Um, a little less so in, in football, though, definitely a part of that uh, with a few, you know, three schools in, in particular that have had success um, with uh, St. Joe's, um, Archbishop Wood, and in Imhotep Charter. Yeah. You know, those are class six, five, and four uh, down, the, down the line. They've had uh, great success at the, at the state level. But, um, you know, I just think when it was a huge shift in, uh, in the paradigm when those schools were added, and that <clears throat> I'm not trying to make uh, any type of statement that they shouldn't have been added, just the reality was, again, when you're taking a, a population base that was as large as it, as it uh, is, um, clearly they should have been in. Uh, if you want to really say that you're a Pennsylvania state champion, it allows, uh, it allows you to say that when the largest city within the Commonwealth is a part of the institution. And that mm-hmm. has certainly been the case the last 10 years. But to your point, I think, um, you know, the increase in classifications a few years ago, um, basically, if you want to use football, basketball, going from four classes to six classes has definitely um, been a situation where it's clearly math would tell you it'll, it allows for uh, more championship opportunities. Uh, baseball would be another six class entity. It's, it's, you know, permitted more championship uh, opportunities. And uh, I really think has given, um, you know, especially some of the, the smaller schools within our state, um, you know, a chance to, to run the table and, and have something historic that they'll remember forever. We're talking to Bill Flanagan. He's the um, he's the AD. He's the athletic director for Cathedral Prep in Villa Maria. Um, Bill, you know, as as far as kind of the prevailing issues, some of the things that we've been hearing about and that we're going to be talking about in our next half, uh, next hour, actually, is uh, again we'll put your PIAA hat on uh, the the concept that you know there's an official shortage. And that official shortage comes from the the lack of uh, of control of some of the stands that that the fans are getting. You know, there's a lack of civility in the stands, and and officials, you know, for the what they're getting paid to do a sh- uh, a game, they don't want to deal with it. it. Can you speak to that? Do you disagree? No, I mean, I think you hit on it uh, perfectly. I saw uh, a video. Last week, uh, I it might have been in Pennsylvania. There was uh, an eleven-year-old little league eleven uh, game, <laughs> eleven-year-old little league game where a uh, a teenager was the home plate umpire. Uh, some parents didn't like the call. Fortunately, he was spared. But what ended up happening were thirty or forty presumed if you want to call them that adults that end up on the playing surface uh, in the middle of the game in a massive fist fight. Oh, jeez. Uh, I mean, that's what our society has, has come down to. And I, I think you've just, you probably couldn't have said it better. The, the expectation I think of, of fans um, across literally the country has completely 
changed. You know, in, in our situation when we're dealing with trying to instruct and have great dialogue with, with coaches at our home base, you know, we have a one line that we like to use that you can't compete with the ride home. And, you know, that means that a lot of times, no matter what city you're in, that, you know, a young boy or girl will get in the car and they'll start to get peppered by their parent. How much did you play today in practice? Are you running with the ones? You think you're going to start on Tuesday? That sort of thing. The I just think that overall, many parents have a vision that their little Johnny or Janie is going to be a Division One, fully paid college athlete. And that stays rooted with them as those years tick off. And when the pressure starts to mount, um, you start to see probably behavior uh, across the board that is not only uh, unacceptable, it's, it's despicable. Now you twist it back to, you know, we have, is the officiating in this state perfect? Absolutely not. I mean, no one is, uh, is, is um, you know, the, the ideal official from the standpoint of getting, getting everything right every single time. They're out there trying. They're doing their job. And if you saw across um, all sports what they're being paid, uh, you'd realize that this is probably not a profession for you. And that's what's disappointing right now is because so many fans take it uh, – upon themselves to constantly berate, scream, yell, threaten at times, uh, officials made over calls. It's, uh, it's mind numbing to me and, and being in different parts of the state, seeing this, it's, uh, it's borderline grotesque at times. It, it really is. It's, it's, it's great when people are able to be reined in and, and but sometimes that takes police going into the stands. And wow. I, I would love to think that eventually it's going to get better. I'm not certain that it, that it will, but I think that's probably reason number one, why there is an officials shortage. It's not a matter that they're um, not able to get rich off of it. No one is anyway. I think it's more of, do I really want to put myself out there and take this kind of verbal abuse uh, and on a rare occasions in different parts of the country, physical abuse, Wow. To sit here, uh, you know, when I can just really go home and, and relax at the end of a tough day. All these other people, the, these officials, they're, they're hardworking, full-time employees somewhere else. And they do this as, uh, you know, as one of their passions at night or on the weekends. And where the return sometimes is uh, certainly does not meet the expectation. Uh, uh, from uh, either, either side, the AD or the or the PIAA official side, what's the what's what's a solution that you guys are bouncing around? I heard something about uh, that there would be actual sanctions put on the team itself for unruly fans. Is that out? Is that out there? That that has happened in, uh, and I, I think that gets back to one of your original questions where you would ask, you know, what what does District 10 do, and, and it, again, it comes under that umbrella of, of 12 different districts. Those are things that, that can and have been enacted at the District 10 level and, and certainly other districts where if, you know, if there's egregious mistakes uh, made at that level where parents are out of control, schools are brought in in front of a district uh, committee, in our case, the District 10 committee, and made to explain what happened on said date and how they're going to course correct moving forward. And sanctions have been handed down um, for unruly behavior, as they should. Um, yeah. Again, as a, 
high school administrator. Uh, you know, we've been very blessed to, to play in many high-end, competitive, and even championship-type games. And there have been many times where we felt that that particular call that went against us wasn't a great one. But it doesn't give you carte blanche to react uh, the way so many do and just completely lose your mind. And uh, I think it is important, imperative for districts like ourselves to continue to to keep an eye on that. I think that's been the case steadily under uh, our direction of uh, our chairman, Pete Iacino, uh, where he has made uh, clearly that's a, a focal point, as it should be. And I think the state sees that as well. To your left, it's uh, Paul Adamzak. How you doing? Uh, ben DeStefano. How you doing? And Tom Reisenweber. How you doing? We'll start with you, Paul. Give us your origin story. It's a family show, so tell us about uh, your origin story. Did you come up in Erie, and what you do now? Uh, well, I was born in Erie. I went to uh, private school uh, when I was a when I was a wee chap through eighth grade at St. <laughs> Luke's. I moved out to Lake City before high school. I attended Girard High School. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to college in the area at Edinburgh. Uh, currently, I do sports for the last five years at WCTL on Friday nights in the fall, um, and I also coach football at Girard High School in the fall as well. Awesome. Ben Stefano. Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Erie, grew up and graduated from Fairview High School, uh, played sports at Fairview, uh, not real well at a whole lot of them. <laughs> did, a, did a little okay in football for a few years, uh, played under Jack Bestwick, and oh, wow, uh, yeah. was able to uh, learn a lot from him. Um, and then in my uh, early work years, um, coached uh, high school football at uh, varsity JV level down in Somerset, Pennsylvania. Moved back up here and uh, coached middle school football uh, on Jim Brindling's staff mm. uh, at Fairview for seven years, and uh, also have coached uh, middle school baseball uh, out at the district. Cool. Tom? Grew up in Erie, left for a couple years to go to say Bonaventure, go Bonas. And of course, <laughs> it has, I think, one of the top journalism schools in the country. I went for business, but came back to Erie <laughs> and started working at the Erie Times News under uh, Joe Mattis. And when he retired, I took his job. So I've been uh, covering high school for about 13 years now. Joe Mattis, what a guy. Oh, he's a great guy. He's an awesome guy. He knows a lot about Erie sports, too. Yeah, for definitely. Sure. Well, guys, we're here today talking about high school sports, and one of the things that, kind of a timely thing, too, a recent bill has been introduced to the House of Representatives in Pennsylvania. It's House Bill 1600, and it is called the Parity and Interscholastic Athletics Act, and it talks about trying to level the playing field. So a little bit of background as I understand it. Obviously, you have public schools and private schools. In 1972, the PIAA, there was an act enacted that the PIAA had to accept private schools into their jurisdiction, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so that was nearly 50 years ago, like uh, Mm -hmm. A.D. Bill Flanagan talked about. Uh, And so since then, there's been this, I don't want to use disparity, but there has been some, maybe some inequality when it comes to certain teams having possibly better players than others because of their ability to acquire certain players because of however the however you want to put it. Mm-hmm. There are some maybe some talent differences between public and private schools. It's been going on not just in Erie, but everywhere in the state. And it's nothing new. This is not a Pennsylvania thing. This is everywhere. This mm-hmm. is high school sports. So kind of the question I'm posing to you, with this House, house Bill 1600, those that have talked about it, the overlying issue is they're trying to bring equality to sports what does that mean how does it affect us here in erie how does that affect the kids how does it affect the parents uh we we heard a little bit about um from 
the athletic director and uh, secretary from PIAA, Bill Flanagan, that there's a shortage of uh, uh, officials and talked about some of the reasons why. I mean, there, it's a big sports is a big deal in in around here. You hear about Northwestern Pennsylvania football going to the NFL and, you know, the folks that have been around this area and gone through the under the PIAA and been drafted and things and not just in football, but also in other sports too, some of the major sports. Talk about the background. Paul, start with you. Well, I want to start with, uh, you, you talk about public versus private, and I think in my research, one of the biggest things, I don't like those terms. I like boundary and non-boundary, because when we talk about private schools, we talk specifically about Catholic schools, I think, is, is most of them. Over 90% are Catholic. 91%, exactly. Um, so we also have 13% of schools in Pennsylvania are known as charter schools. They're technically public, public schools, schools. <laughs> um, but they're really not. They're non-boundary schools. That mm-hmm. is, they don't have to go within specific barriers that they're allowed to take their athletes from. They can take athletes from around the area. They can take them from around the country. And in many cases, we've seen them take them from around the world. So that's one of the biggest disparities that I think uh, this bill really fails to address um, as a jumping off point. Do you guys agree? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think the intent of the bill is... We all understand it. The challenge where it falls short is it doesn't include the charter schools. So it it almost doesn't help at all. Um, When you leave the charter schools in there as a public school, all you're doing is taking, to to the point, 90%, the parochial schools out of it, Mm -hmm. um, and you're not addressing the real issue. If if this bill goes forward and we get passed, it's going to be a great day for Imahotep and, and Lincoln Park because now they just get to beat up on the public schools and never have to beat up on a cathedral prep or anybody else. It, it really just continues to water down for the public school, I think, the competition and the chance for championships. When you think about this bill, there's one group that really loses out. It's the public schools. Yeah, the private schools no longer have to play charters. Charters no longer have to play the private schools, and the transfer rule is gone. So it's the wild, wild west. So the only group that's really affected is public schools, which is crazy because they're the ones that want change here. And so it just—it's. I think this bill is, is so far off base that I don't think they should even propose it. Um, I'm hoping there's enough feedback that they don't. They mm-hmm. don't go forward with it. Um, it was interesting. Uh, Tim O'Malley, the head of the Whippeal said they are absolutely against this bill. So yes. we already lost one part of the state. That, that's over. Emphatically. For you. So <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I just I think this thing is so rot with problems. And you know it's funny. They were like, oh what private schools are on board with this. Well yeah. There's no more there's no more transfer rule and they they don't have to play the charter schools anymore. So why they'd be all for it. The public schools, I can't believe Bill Hall from McDowell is on board with this thing because it's just so rot with problems. Now, talk about the transfer rules, because PIAA tried to really tighten that down just recently. Now, this would remove that jurisdiction from the PIAA and just say, no, you can go wherever you want, whatever you want. So talk about what possibly you could try to do it from both sides. Ben, your opinion on that. So I think the transfer rule is is. Uh, <laughs> should I say comical <laughs> at times? Because, I mean, the, the, here's the argument, right? We we put these rules in place, we modify these rules, and as early as last year coming into this year, we've strengthened, quote-unquote, these rules so that, that transfers are more legitimate. However, 
you know, behind the scenes at the water cooler, down at the concession stand. It's all a wink and a nod. We kind of see what's going on. You want them to be more legitimate, but somehow when you see the reports and uh, I just want to say Tom does a great job, you know, filling in our community on what's happening at those meetings. Um, we see the transfers still happening and, and you, you see the criteria, right? If you go to the internet, you can find the PIAA transfer rules and you start to read through your, your, you can now transfer, but you are ineligible for one year in postseason unless, right? And then you start reading down through the unless part and you start looking around and, well, who determines this and who determines that? Yeah, I was just going to ask, now, who, exactly, who is the determining factor in whether or not the transfer goes through or whether or not the kid has to sit? Well, the District 10 committee, well, basically, it all starts with the principal to principal. Um, let's say a kid wants to leave Erie to go to McDowell. Both schools have to sign off. Now, you either, if you're Erie, you either sign off, it's fine, go ahead, or you sign off, we challenge this because it's athletic intent. Then they would have a hearing with the district head committee, and the district head committee would decide if they're eligible or not. And you know this transfer rule, I don't really get it. Like, why would you be able to play in the regular season, not the postseason? It just makes no sense to me. Like Iroquois girls basketball was severely affected by this. Um, they got hammered in the playoffs without their three transfers, and they didn't transfer any malicious intent. You know, going from McDowell to Iroquois, you know, that's not exactly a step up. But they went over there because their dad was coaching there mm-hmm. uh, in a different sport. Uh, so we've seen some kids be uh, ineligible for the playoffs. Um, I, this transfer rule, it's hard to see if it's working yet because it's only his first year. This competitive balance thing they're going to do now with if you win. Talk about that. Yeah, if you win state championships or go far in the state playoffs and you have transfers, you may be forced to go to a, cl- a different class, to a higher mm-hmm. class. Which It's like a point system involved with that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But if you're a 6A school, what do you care? I mean, you're not going mm-hmm. to 7A. There's only six classes. Right. So, not um, yet, anyway. We, we might see, yeah. We might see this with... Uh, started. <laughs> <laughs> we may see this with Cathedral Prep Football. They mm-hmm. won a state title this past year unexpectedly, I think, by even by their standards. Mm-hmm. And they had six transfers. Um, I don't think they really wanted those six because no one really affected anything except for one. Um, but they're probably going to make another run this year, and it's a two-year cycle. So we may see them have to go up to 5A next year because of this, this uh, formula. So I think uh, this 1600 is very premature. We don't know if the transfer is going to help. We've seen a lot of high-profile kids have to sit out because of it. So maybe this will be a deterrent. I just don't get why postseason and you can't play in regular season and playoffs, but whatever. But well, I think the intent was is that, okay, we can get this. If the ultimate goal is state championship, then that's playoffs. So if they get the transfer in and say, oh, well, you can't play in the playoffs, then they're not able to play them in the postseason. Therefore, they're not allowed to get the championship. So I think that's the reason why. But is that enough of a reason why to stop the transfer? And I that's be- what we, we don't know. I believe the original intent, and this was by the PIAA, uh, to in- institute that transfer rule was to quell the number of senior transfers we saw in places like the Whippeal and the Catholic, the Philadelphia mm-hmm. Catholic League, where it was they'd play three years at one spot, pretty much figure out when you're 17 years old, well, who's going to be the team to beat next year? I'm going to go join that guys, those guys. I've only got one year left anyway, might as well move. So with the transfer rule taking away the playoffs, that sort of made them think, well... I, I'm going to stay here because if I can't play the playoffs anyway, I might as well stay where I'm used to. And that happened in St. Joe, uh, not St. Joe's Prep, the uh, Roman Catholic basketball team. Mm-hmm. Their star player left for uh, the big prep school in Virginia, 
got homesick in the spring, came back, but never actually played for Oak Hill Academy. But because he transferred and came back, he was done for the playoffs. That is a huge problem in mm. Philadelphia uh, for Roman Catholic. They ended up losing, I think, in the state semifinals. We were going to see maybe a showdown with Evan Kennedy Catholic. Never saw it because that kid was out. So it is affecting kids right now. It's just a matter of will it be enough of a deterrent to keep kids from transferring. Gotcha. When we come back, we're going to go to break here a little bit. But let's talk about, all right, we've identified some of the issues. What are some of the solutions then? Is there something that that can be done from your guys' perspective? A bill has been introduced in the House, PA House of Representatives. Uh, it's House Bill 1600. It's basically an equity bill. They're trying to provide parity between the boundary schools and the non-boundary schools. And they're, from what I understand, too, and I forget which one it was. I believe it was, um, it might have been uh, Leonard Rich. He was asked about it. He is the state, the co-state coordinator of the Pennsylvania Athletic Equity Steering Committee. And he was saying that they went in asking for a whole lot more. This is not what they got. They didn't get everything they wanted in this bill, but it's a starting point. Is this bill a starting point? It has to be, because it certainly isn't a finished point. Uh, as, it's written, <laughs> as it's written, it leaves out so much that... Uh, no transfer rule at all. I mean, Tom said it, wild, wild west. You could play football at Cathedral Prep in the fall, transfer to McDowell in the winter, play basketball there, transfer to Penn Hills in Philadelphia and run track in the spring. No transfer rule. You'd be postseason eligible. I mean, it'd be absolute chaos if this bill got passed as is. Yeah, and and uh, here's my I, – I try to take the, the Joe on the couch point of view, right? This isn't going to go anywhere. And here's why. It got referred to committee – and the committee, the legislature is out for the summer. They're not going to pick it up till the fall. And and to some people's Twitter responses are, are accurate. Why why do I want our government talking about state playoffs in the education, just in the education sector of government for the state? Especially, I would think here in Erie. Why do we want our government? taking this on when there are so many other things. I think it's going to die in committee. It's never going to get spun out. Even if it gets spun out, it'll probably die in the Senate. Even if it does survive the Senate, it'll (laughs) die again. It's got to go to, like, this is not, this is good, and I'm not trying to hijack the show, but I mean, this is, we're all going to talk about this. It's not going to happen, especially the way it is, because there are way too many holes in it with the whip heel out. Um, and other groups, they're just going to look at it like this is just ridiculous. Nice try. It's probably somebody's attempt to just you know pander to the audience and um, see what they can do for re-election. Yeah, I don't want to accuse uh, Representative Bernstein of doing that, but that's I think that's exactly what he's doing. Uh, just having conversations with him, I don't think he's done the research on this topic. I don't think he knows what he's talking about at times with this topic. Um, he's accused the PIA of racism, uh, which is out of my. I can't even believe he did that on Twitter. Um, but you know, the oversight committee for the PIA uh, and, and the House of Representatives, uh, they never were consulted about this. Bernstein went around them and was going to propose. Hmm. He's never actually talked to the group that's been working on this for years. I think he kind of knew he would get some uh, some pushback from that. Um, you know, this whole thing, it's it's tough. There's so many layers to it. It's, you know, like an onion, you keep peeling it back. We talk about boundary, non-boundary. On Gerald McLean's website, their front page, it advertises pay tuition and come here as a student. So are they considered a boundary school or are they a non-boundary because you can pay tuition and go play sports there? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you look at... I looked at this thing for so many things. There's, I don't think there's really a solution. You know, uh, Bernstein was talking about 
it's either do this or do nothing. And I, almost like do nothing was a negative. I think do nothing is the best solution at this point because there's no great solution. Uh, in Ohio, there's a multiplier. I don't know if that really would work. Um, and it, the way that works is for every student at a Catholic school, it counts 1.25. So if you have 500 kids at a pro- public school, 500 at a private school, they're going to go up to 600, whatever it is, uh, based on that multiplier. But you'll get how they do the uh, rankings for the classes classes. and you'll get Kennedy Catholic boys basketball when they were a one A school. You could have had a two multiplier. They still would have been one A. So how would that help anything? (laughs) Uh, So I just I just don't think there's a really good solution. New York is separated and you look at colleges who gets who recruits the most kids. It's all the private schools in New York. There's not a public school out there that's getting a ton of recruits because colleges know all the talent's going to float to the private schools. So is that a world we want to live in in Pennsylvania? So every solution I've tried to come up with has some kind of big issue with it. And, you know, it's funny. We were talking about 1600. I don't know if the best part would have been forget all the other stuff and just say we want to erase the 1972 law and then let's pass that. Then let's work with PIAA and work on a, on a system because this thing is so full of different things, it gets complicated and just do one simple thing. 1601, we want to reverse 1972 law, then let's move forward. And the 1972 law, again, was uh, saying that to the PIAA, you had to accept private schools under your jurisdiction, mm-hmm. and which they have. But would that still, even accepting them under their jurisdiction, would that still preclude them from having separate championships? I think they I think in the 90s they challenged that and there was a whole bunch of lawsuits from the, the private schools and the PIAA said forget it we're just going to we're just going to keep you together. Uh, I don't know if their lawyers telling the same thing. Bob Lombardi has said on record that even if they reverse 1972 they have no interest in separating unless the membership really wants it. And you talk about the equity summit. There are 500 school districts in Pennsylvania. I think it was attended by 125, 130. So mm-hmm. not even half of the schools decided to go to this thing. So is it really that big of an issue that they have to do something? I think it's more of a Western Central PA thing right now that people are really upset. East seems to not even care about it. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, maybe one of the solutions is actually enforcing the rules that we actually have. <laughs> like, maybe that's the novel idea, <laughs> that instead of creating new laws or new rules or new, you know, Who should enforce program, those? Well, I think I mean, it goes... To your point, sure. we don't want necessarily state government... Mm-hmm. We don't want a law on the books mm-hmm. that if you, what happens if someone goes against, do they get arrested? Well, and, and I'm speaking, <laughs> yeah, you know, more specifically directly to the transfer rule itself. Mm-hmm. Let's police that appropriately. Let's make sure that the rules are being followed appropriately. And, and right, I mean, there, we don't want government doing that, but maybe there needs to be a better checks and balances mm-hmm. because you hear some of these stories and, and um, you know, I think Tom spoke to this uh, in this spring in, the, in his Twitter account, and and that you know it goes to it goes. These are closed door sessions that we don't. The public can't. We're not in on that, which I think is appropriate in some in most sure. regards because mm-hmm. they're private family matters. Mm-hmm. But then you see some of the results, and you raise your eyebrow and you look around and you see, and then you hear the stories in town, and we're, you know, I think there needs. To, I think first of all, let's enforce the rules that we have. Secondly, let's have some, maybe within D10 or PIAA, there needs to be more self oversight or checks and balances internally to make sure it's happening appropriately. There's way too many times where we as the general public are going to look at this and go, oh yeah, I know what happened. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I just wanted to just real quickly talk about there's a misconception about the D10 committee with private schools. There was a big to-do a couple years ago. There was four prep hearings uh, for eligibility with uh, Joey Scarabino, Regan Schleicher, you know, four really high-profile athletes. On the committee, there are two private school representatives. Um, Bill Flanagan is on there from prep. He's the secretary, and he represents the private schools. And uh, Pete Iacino, who's the chairman. Mm-hmm. Pete recused himself from those four hearings, and Bill went on the other side of the table and represented prep. So there was no private school representation whatsoever on that D10 committee, and they ruled all four eligible. So it's not this big conspiracy with District 10. I wish people would realize that they're all out for the best interest of the kids. It has no, no, uh, nothing to do with what school they're going to or what school they're coming mm-hmm. from. I think so, one of the fundamental changes, if no, go for ahead. a second, one of the fundamental changes that I think the PIAA needs is the schools themselves don't have any vote in anything that deals with the PIAA. Schools in Pennsylvania only are able to change PIAA uh, bylaws themselves, but they're not allowed to vote on individual rule changes. So their own governing body, they really have no say in it. Schools in Ohio have these voting rights. Indiana has these voting rights. Um, if I read it correctly, I believe Florida has these voting rights. So, I mean, these are states that are sort of way ahead of Pennsylvania in this sort of area. So that would be one of the first things. Like 69% of PIAA participant schools in Pennsylvania are truly uh, public, not, uh, not or boundary rather, schools. Mm-hmm. So it, it, underrepresentation is is possible on sort of these district committees but on a state level 18% of the uh 18% of the chairman if you will or members of the PAWA board are from private schools so that's i don't think that's an issue what about the officials and we have about uh 90 seconds left what again we're saying they're doing this all for the kids but this is also kind of big business i was when we were i was listening to Bill talk about how you know the officials are getting yelled at by parents coming out of the uh, out of the stands. Uh, uh, an eleven year old little league game is being officiated by or umped by a, a teenager, and he's you know it turns into a fisticuffs basically, or at least a, there were harsh words exchanged. He's a teenager trying to just umpire a game. Why is there not? Why is there not more? Um, I'm not even thinking sure of the words. How come parents can't behave themselves? Why can't adults be adults? Well, one thing I always thought was <laughs> when I was at a soccer, soccer playoffs in the stadium, uh, you know, people are below us. They're running their mouths. I was like, I wonder if I can record them right now and play it back for them after the game and see if they really are proud of themselves. These people lose their minds because they're kids. These are high school kids playing a sport. Right. It's not that serious. I just don't mm-hmm. understand it. You ask, you know, you're kind of asking what's the solution to that? My my question would be, what are the school district um, school boards? What are their solutions? Because it's mm-hmm. happening on their property. It's happening under their management. It's happening under their athletic director's oversight. It's happening under their game management oversight. And I think before we start trying to answer it at a larger level, let's go back to the school district and say, what are you guys going to do about it? I agree with that. Put, put the onus on the school district to take, to take care of their parents. However they want to handle it, they should be able to handle it. And I'm all for kicking fans out. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's been a recent House bill, uh, House of Representatives in Pennsylvania, introduced of uh, House Bill 1600, trying to bring some order to some of the chaos that appears to be out there, at least interpreted by some folks, saying that uh, there's a, a section of schools that have an advantage over public schools or boundary schools. Yes. <laughs> Non-boundary versus boundary schools. And so they're trying to bring some equity to that. Uh, it's a starting point. 
it's it's not a law. It's just been proposed. Uh, and they're doing this because of uh, some things that are at least to the casual person seemingly out of control with uh, this person can go here. Uh, these schools always seem to be in the state championship. We're going far in the playoffs. My little school is not able to. They're not able to compete. Uh, I have some really good athletes at my school, and all of a sudden, they're gone because they've transferred to another school, and their program's really intact, and then they go to the state championship, or they go to the playoffs or go far into the playoffs. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking about some ways that maybe we can help with that process. We talked about a shortage of officials in high school sports and about somehow sometimes the parents of uh, these uh, high school athletes, uh, they come down out of the stands and they get in the coach's face or at practice and they ask them, hey, you are you uh, playing enough? Are you doing this enough? Well, I'm, I, I think you're better than little Johnny over there. You shouldn't be, you should be playing ahead of him. And so parents are kind of getting in on the act as well. So I pose this question to you guys off there. I'll pose it to you on the air. Is there too much, is the day of the student athlete going to, school and playing all the sports that the school has to offer, or at least uh, more than one, are those days over? Is it too specialized now? And because of that specialization, is there now too much pressure on not necessarily the athlete, but just the system that's in place? Is there too much pressure on the kid to perform so he can get the scholarship, so he can get go to the big school to get a scholarship because college is expensive? Is Are the days of I don't want to say that, you know, the days of happy days in the 50s where everyone was happy and these, everyone wore their letter sweater. Pre-1972. Right. <laughs> but is there too much pressure? What do you guys think? Um, and we set it off here. I think sport for the sake of sport is gone, um, at least at the high school level, especially at the college level, um, because of the money. Follow mm-hmm. the money. Um, winning state championships, that gives coaches bigger contracts, sure. not necessarily at their school, but at a bigger program. Um, for the athletes themselves, you know, the better I perform, the bigger scholarship I can get at college. Mm-hmm. And and that sort of goes to the parents as well, because if you're a parent and you have a child who's decent at a sport and maybe he's got a shot at Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three, if they can get and Ben mentioned it, you know, baseball, there's only 11 scholarships. But you know what? If I'm paying 10 grand a year and my kid can get a 50 percent scholarship, hey, that's five thousand dollars out of my pocket. I don't have to pay. So absolutely. I want you to I'm going to do whatever I can for you to get that five thousand dollars or two thousand dollars or forty thousand dollars. Follow the money. Sport for the sake of sport is a beautiful idea. But in today's economy, really, uh, and, and the rising costs of college and all that, I don't want to say it's it's for sure gone at all levels. But boy, the higher levels in Pennsylvania Definitely. I mean, we've heard stories of, you know, on draft day in the NFL. Well, my my dad moved with me to a different county or different city or different state because I would have a better chance of playing and I was recognized more and I got the got into the big time school. I set some passing records and here I am on draft day because of my dad. Exposure is a legitimate argument as well, but I think there are so many leagues, AAU style leagues that you can get exposure over the summer. And I think in many cases, basketball being one of them, the AAU circuit in the summer, you can get more exposure on that circuit than you possibly can even at the highest level of high school basketball in Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's really where Kayla McBride got her offers. Uh, Villa Maria basketball was kind of secondary. You know, she was out of camps talking to Gino Ariyama and Muffin McGraw and got her offers to UConn and Notre Dame. 
uh, out AAU camp. So it, it's you talk about follow the money. That's it's almost the biggest threat to high school sports right now is the off season stuff, the travel ball and baseball, these seven on seven travel tournaments now for football. It's just mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah, have NFL players sponsoring these things. So the money is really kind of centered now on these off season things. People are building super teams to go play in these AAU tournaments. Um, you know, it started out. It's funny looking at the Erie Saints as AAU program. They'll have eight or nine kids from a school go off. Now you got two kids from this school and two kids from this school, and they're building super teams. And maybe kids want to transfer to go play for that coach. So the offseason stuff has just been out of control at this point. Volleyball, same way. You can play a volleyball tournament every single weekend after the after their season's <laughs> over. So it's almost like the high school seasons are becoming secondary to what mm-hmm. you can do in the offseason. Yeah, I think that's true. I think you see that. Um, I'm seeing that in a different perspective um, for, for, for baseball especially if you're a Northern kid. If you're a Northern kid that wants to play college baseball, uh, exposure's huge. You've, you've got to get looked at. You have to be seen. Mm-hmm. And and you're not going to be looked at over a 17-game season in Northwest <laughs> Pennsylvania, True. you know, where, you know, the competition is yeah, so-so at best at times. Mm-hmm. You've got to be seen. And so there's some legitimacy to, I got to go play, I got to go to a showcase, I got to do this, I got to do that. If I, again, maybe not even for the money, just I want to play. I want a coach to know my name. I don't care if it's $1,500 or or, you know, or, you know, book money. I just want to be seen by somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes you got to do that thing. But I think back to your question directly. Yeah, I, I think I think the day and, and I think Paul said it well, I think playing the sport for the sport is over, mm-hmm. which is ironic because there are there are if you do again, Google search. Um, if you look at Google articles, is your friend. Yeah. If you look at, or your browser of choice, yes, um, true. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, if you look for articles where, where high level college coaches come out and say, we want the multi-sport athlete, but you can't convince the parents that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's, it, it's the world we're living in. You got to try to figure out how to manage it well and do the best job you can. Even something small too, like. McDowell Baseball, their field is terrible. So they play all their home games now at UPMC Park. The Detroit Tigers have a track man system in place for all their home games. That guy tracks every high school game played at that park to possibly give some exposure to the Tigers. You know, this kid's coming up. So even small stuff like that, you got to do whatever you can to get your name out there. So, yeah, and that's where the days of, okay, little Johnny, he's going to play football in the fall. He's going to play basketball in the summer. Or in the winter, and then play baseball in the spring. That's, I mean, I'm still sure it still happens, but maybe not to that extent because there's so much specialized pressure now. So that then transfers to the parents. The parents are saying, okay, you got to make sure that you're playing. We got to get you in front of the, oh, you're better than that one. So is that where the breakdown happens, where parents are coming out of the stands and yelling at the coaches in the middle of the game or at the officials in the middle of the game and coaches when they're not playing? Is I that think that's happens? definitely some of it. I think you gotta, you you almost have to ask the question, um, and and maybe this is too, I don't know what, but I mean you almost have to ask the question: What's your family narrative? Mm. Like what's your like what are you trying to uh, accomplish as a family? What is what is your end goal? What do you really want to see happen? And uh, there, because if you if you sit, actually sit down and maybe write that stuff down, you could find solutions to that where you don't look like a maniac. Where it, where you know what? At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter whether you went nineteen or and two or two and nineteen. You're gonna get, you're gonna get looked at. You're gonna find. You have your coaches find talent. Coaches find talent. Uh, 
And so mm-hmm. all you have to do is, is, and that's what parents need to dial back on. Like, don't get all bent out of shape. And I'm speaking as a parent currently with kids who play sports, as a parent who used to have kids who played sports, as a parent who was both in the high school and, uh, and as a coach, I was the guy yelling at the referees. Like I lived that I yelled that way. And then I started maybe maturing a little bit and pulling it back <laughs> and like, you know what? It's going to work out or, you know, have a different family narrative, understand what you're trying to accomplish. Because I think some of this too is, is not just, not just money for college and not just college, but some of this is, is mom and dad reliving their glory years. You know, mm-hmm. this is mom and dad, you know, I was, or I wanted to be, or I wish I was, you know, and, and getting upset because, uh, you know, subconsciously that's really, they're, they're trying to play the game. So it might be coming from a, a, I want my kid to improve. I want them to have the opportunity that maybe I didn't have, but the way it's coming across is maybe not the best. I think it was Bob Stoops, uh, former Oklahoma University football coach. He said it was this a few years ago, so I've used this quote for a while now. If you can play, we will find you. Okay, so this is at any level of football. The single A all the way up to 6, 7, 8A, I think they play in Texas now. If you can play, we will find you. What I find ironic in all this is when college coaches come to talk to high school coaches and there are different avenues where they they bring everybody together so they can ask things and, and get to know a little bit about the students the first thing that these college coaches ask you it's not what's their 40 time what's their three cone drill what's their bench press the first thing that they ask you what's their sat what's their gpa because those are the kids that that, uh, that i can get into my program it is so competitive athletically that they want the kids to do well in school Mm-hmm. So we get lost in, boy, I need to get bigger. I need to get faster. I need to get stronger. I need to throw for more yards. I need to get more rebounds per game. I need to improve my war or all those unbelievable baseball <laughs> stats. That's that's all well and good, but that's literally less than 50% of the process. Got to go to class. Got to go to class. Got to go to class. Well, the one mm-hmm. thing that's funny, every spring, you just look at softball and baseball rosters. How many seniors are there that hadn't played yet? Well, Why? Because their coach told them, their basketball coach told them, or a football coach said, "You're not special. You're, not, you're specializing in your sport. You're not playing it." But they have no control over them their last year in high school. So it's just funny to watch how many first year seniors play baseball, softball, in District Ten because it's a lot. Mm. Interesting. Now, obviously, we're not going to solve a lot here, but we're talking about a lot of different things here. Uh, the House bill is trying to provide parity. We're also talking about parents. We're talking about a shortage of officials. What are some things, what are some of the solutions? You're king for a day, Paul. What are some things that you would like to do to try to to draw this together? In the end, if we have good schools with good students, with good officiating, with basically a community again, Mm -hmm. as opposed to this kind of these warring factions, what are some of the ways to try to get that community mindedness back well i think the whole the the bill is called the parody deal so Mm -hmm. really what everybody wants in all this you want every level competing you know the the kids competing against basically their level level playing field level Mm -hmm. the playing field so hb 1600 is going to create we have six classes now that wants to create six more classes okay just for private private schools not non-boundary charter schools just Mm -hmm. private schools so we have 43 schools Mm -hmm. private schools in pennsylvania playing football okay so that's six championships among 43 schools, which is just mind-blowing the numbers. There's only five 5A private schools in Pennsylvania. So if you're a 5A private school and you play football, you have a 20% chance of winning a state championship every single year under this bill. Insane. So what I have here is is I I wrote this down about a week ago. Um, I have it. it it's titled PIAA Fixed. 
Now, <laughs> you have the answer set. Okay, I, I, I didn't think we we're going to solve anything that. today. There no, are there are two problems with it, but this is this is unbelievably good. So, just a few years ago, some of you uh, older folk will remember we had four classifications in Pennsylvania yeah. high school sports, mm-hmm. and it wasn't broken. We don't need six classes, but PIAA wanted to appease a lot of people by creating more championships. Right, so the smaller schools would really play against some smaller schools. The four A schools were playing against schools twice their size in some cases, and that's all well and good. So what I have is I have six classes. I have a boundary class of four, single A, double A, triple A, quad A, and then I have what's called my non-boundary class. We have small Catholic charter, large Catholic charter. So four, truly boundary, and two, non-boundary. Still have six classes. Everybody's happy. We're playing boundary schools versus boundary schools, non-boundary schools versus boundary schools. The transfer rule, I have it as it exists because I happen to like the transfer rule for the reason I stated earlier. Got to quell the senior transfers, and that's from public to private, private to public. Um, I have a list of the the hardship waivers, and I like them. The way it's written in law, it, it seems very strict, and as Tom and Ben and I were talking before the show, it's really district by district how strictly enforced they are. There are, hey, this is a clear athletic transfer, and somehow, sometimes, they get around it. So that thing's going to happen. But I have six classes. I have a transfer rule. um, And I have written here, all PIAA schools get voting rights for all proposed referendums, which is what I mentioned earlier in the show as well. The schools get to control their own destinies. And then the final point I have in here, um, other than the competition formula, which is is not done yet. I, I I, I like the idea but it, it needs some tweaking. Um, the last point I have here is no Super Bowl. And that was, as the, the, the bill as it's proposed, is there are six uh, public and six private. And then at the end of the year, single-A private will play single-A public. And they meet to determine the I don't know if champion. you've ever met a basketball coach two weeks before the basketball season. They're like drill sergeants. They want their athletes in their camp. They want them dribbling the ball 10,000 times sure. before they even get into a scrimmage. Mm-hmm. So adding another... Like I mentioned with the 5A, if you have this huge public bracket of 5A schools, these these private schools in the 5A bracket, there's five of them. The, the playoffs are done in two weeks. Um, they're waiting around for a while. They're playing much fewer games. If you have a Super Bowl between those two teams, it's, it's going to be so awkwardly slanted. And then the other way, even if you didn't have a Super Bowl, now you have 12 champions in, in one sport. And I don't, did you guys watch the Scripps National Spelling Bee? This was about a month ago. They were they they ran out of TV time is what happened. They named fifteen champions in the Scripps National Spelling Bee. So we had fifteen winners this year in the Spelling Bee. You know what happens when you have fifteen winners? No winners. You have no winners. <laughs> so it's the same thing for high school football, basketball, volleyball, soccer, all these sports that are proposing mm-hmm. here. There are nine and they separate it boys and girls. If you have twelve champions, you have no champions. So that's that's my fix. I have four public, I have two non boundary. And, and, and we have a transfer rule that tries to qu- that tries to keep kids within school districts. But again, the transfer rule as it's written, if there's truly a reason that I'm going from this school this year to this school this other year, if you can prove that it's really beyond your uh, control, you're playoff eligible. So you've talked about some solutions, but some of those problems we're trying to solve, Ben, are the transfer rule, are the ability to basically for some schools to take advantage and kind of choose which athletes they want from within the community or outside the community. How do you solve that? Who enforces those rules, in your opinion? 
who should. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, again, I'm I'm the guy that's always going to say we've got rules on the books. Let's go back and enforce the rules on the books. So then, and and if the PIAA um, isn't doing it, they've got to police them. They've got to figure out a way to you know, checks and balance themselves. The district 10, when you go to the district levels, district 10's got to do it themselves. They've got to, they've got to uh, have the courage or the want to, to say, look, we need, we need good checks and balances. And I'm not saying they don't have them now, but right. I go back to let's use what we have. Mm-hmm. And then at the other, the other line, the other side of that too, is again, go back to the public schools, uh, school boards and say, Look, you guys have got to play a part in this too. You are our elected officials. We're asking you to do this. Uh, I feel this way, especially with the officials and the officiating. I'd like, again, I'd like to hear the school districts and the school boards lean into uh, the the officials and helping them stay on the court and get more get more officials out there um, because they need to to take some ownership of it as well. So I, I think I don't think we need a lot of new things. I think we need to empower the rules and the laws and the the bylaws that are there. And I would totally agree with you. And I think, you know, I respect a lot what the PIAA does, District 10 does, but they meet every so often. And between that, there's not a lot going on. I, I think we, we need to enforce it to the point where they're investigating things, not wait for the schools to challenge these things. If kids transferring, mm-hmm. let's look into it. Let's, let's put a full effort into it. Let's make some phone calls. And, you know, I've learned with the PIAA, they will do things if you ask them. They will never be proactive and do things without asking. So member schools have to ask for things. That's the word I was, I was thinking of proactive yeah. being in there. Let's get rid of that. Let's go into, we see a problem. Let's see the transfer. Let's get in there. If the same result happens, that's fine. As long as you give a big investigation into it, that's that's fine with me. But right now, it's just so passive. Like, you need to request something for something to happen. We talked about the, private, the public schools doing something. Unless they get together, the PIAA is never going to ask them for their opinion. This bill has been introduced in the PA House about trying to bring parity to high school sports. We've been trying to go over some of the issues with that, trying to come up with some solutions to it. Uh, and we're talking about how specifically who I think we've all kind of come to that. Maybe this bill isn't the greatest thing, but it certainly started in conversation. Uh, I think the panel is saying pretty much they don't want this to pass. They don't think it is. And we keep coming back to there are rules in place right now. Let's enforce them. Who is supposed to enforce them? Does one do the districts have too much power? Does a PIAA that's not uh, will, willing to enforce them? How, how can that work better in your opinions? I just think the uh, the districts have to be more proactive. We've talked about and doing these things. The PIAA will only look at issues that are brought to them on the board level. So it's up to the districts to really kind of go through all those things. 1600, I think we should just call it that everyone wants a trophy act. That's basically <laughs> what the, the purpose is of it. Um, so I think that's just that's nonsense. Um, but I just think that if the districts were more a little more proactive on what they do, then I think people would be a lot happier. Ben? Yeah, I agree. I, I think uh, they got to be proactive, they got to be looking into it. I love Tom's idea of. of of the districts, you know, investigating on their own and and uh, just enforcing what we have. I like what the Whitfield's done. Um, I was able to find a lot of stats online when I was researching this. They they put a lot of info out there between the news the multiple newspapers and and the district website themselves. The Whitfield does challenge a lot of transfers. Now in the Whitfield, um, they see about three hundred and fifty to four hundred transfers per year. Um, of those, only about 5% really get challenged by the Whippeal. And then of those, it's really a case-by-case basis. Who's who's you know ineligible versus eligible? And then like Tom said, then it goes to the PIAA. 
Um, so I'd like to see more districts start acting like the Whippeal. Let's 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 look at these transfers. Let's challenge more. Um, let's send more to the PIAA because these schools are paying into the PIAA. They're they're raking in all this money. Let's let's utilize their services a little bit more. Um, also along that line, I think I mentioned it earlier. I do think the schools need to be a little bit more involved in the PIAA and their legislature, how they write things, how they review things, how they create new laws. Um, instead of just governing laws for the PIAA. I think you, you got to get the schools more involved. And that was one thing I wanted to bring up, too. Uh, that's a good point about how many transfers. People don't realize there's a ton of transfers that just go under the radar because they're not big names. They're not big schools. Um, you'll get – I've been to every D10 meeting for the last eight, nine years. There's a list. There's always like 20 names every time. But when it's public to public, no one cares. If it's public to private, everyone has a heart attack. Mm-hmm. When it's private to public, everyone celebrates it. Uh, so you hear about the big names, the individual cases that are challenged, but there's so many. Uh, you know, I would say 95% of transfers go through without a problem, and no one cares. When the high-profile kids come through, then it's really becoming a big issue. 60 seconds left, uh, maybe about 40 seconds. Any final thoughts? Paul final thoughts. I, I think the PIAA is not completely broken. I don't think HB 1600 fixes it at all. Um, I think we mentioned it earlier in the show. I think it's a step backward as as opposed to a step forward. I do think there are some things that needs changed. This is not the answer. High school sports is one of the best things going in communities. Let's find a way to encourage it at the school level. Let's celebrate all sports. Let's get the communities back rallying around the high school teams in their area. Uh, 1600 is a joke. Bernstein needs to calm down. And if you ask kids, they just want to play. It's the adults that really make this an issue. He is the game manager for the Save and I game. And Doug, it's so good to have you on. We want to talk about the Save and I game. Our theme this today has been high school sports. And there's really not a better way to, to end the day talking about high school sports than with the Save and I game. It's the 81st sure. annual All-Star football game, and it, set, it benefits so many great folks around the area. And so happy to have you on, Doug. Well, I'm glad to be here, and, uh, and I wish I would have been in the studio to, with that uh, killer's row you had in me. I'm sorry <laughs> I missed all those guys there. But, well, it's uh, a little busy day for you today. We're, we're, yeah, we're actually just getting started with our media day down at the Gannon Rec Center, all the media will be here shortly along with uh, a whole bunch of players and coaches and i just stepped outside because uh, i wanted to make sure we had an opportunity to talk and i certainly appreciate um not only this opportunity but you guys have uh, broadcast our game for a number of years and that's a it's a great help for us and it's a, it, it makes it a whole lot easier so we certainly appreciate it well it's certainly uh we wctl loves doing it uh we've done it for several years and we think it's a definitely a worthwhile cause tell us a little bit about the origin of it uh, who it benefits, and the organization behind it. Well, the game itself started 81 years ago, actually, in a, in the old Boston store. They used to have a restaurant up there, and there is some community leaders, including uh, Samuel Black Sr., who went on to be one of the founding fathers of um, Erie Insurance, and uh, um, Gus Palacos, who was a long, the Palacos name is well mm-hmm. known in here, in the area. They started uh, uh, an all-star football game uh, back in 1939, and it has grown now to be the second oldest consecutive running high school all-star football game in the country. Uh, there's some that are obviously quite bigger than us and some smaller, but there's none. There's only one that's older than we are. Uh, and that's a testament to the players and the coaches over the years and, and more testament to the community that supports it. Oh, for sure. Now, it's put on, uh, and it's been doing this for, you know, eight, eight plus decades. And who does it benefit? And why did... Why did you? Why was that chosen as uh, kind of a, a fundraising vehicle? 
Well, um, the Erie Lions Club and all the Lions Clubs in, in, in general, um, one of their main focuses is on eye care. So um, these gentlemen were involved in the, in the Erie Lions Club back in 1939. And um, so they started, you know, they came up with a different, you know, a lot of people do golf tournaments and dances and parties and parades and all that. They came up with the idea of doing this football game. And uh, obviously it was a great idea because it has such great longevity. It's still uh, very much a part. It's, it's a community event. It's, uh, it's more than just a football game. Um, it benefits um, a lot of young people and, and some older people that have issues with, with blindness and, and sight care. Uh, one of the things that we do that we're very proud of, we help support a program at the Sight Center of Northwestern Pennsylvania where I believe their kindergarten or preschool kids are all screened, um, every one of them. That way they're able to find out if there's issues uh, long before they become you know, serious. So, so they're all screened and uh, we, we support that program. Uh, that's in, in a lot of the uh, preschools and, and the school districts around northwestern Pennsylvania. Um, we also help people. Sometimes it's just a matter of a, a prescription that they need filled that they just can't afford. Um, maybe they need a, a very special prescription that, that's quite expensive. You know, we've underwritten surgeries um, for young people that need a, a, a you know surgical procedures. Uh, there's really no set um, project if they if it comes to us and it makes sense and it's in their guidelines, we're happy to help. Hmm. About how much money has been raised over these years to help out with eye care with those in need? Well, we've raised uh, the equivalent of over three and a half million dollars in those 81 years. Those are, uh, when you when you look at the cost of, uh, um, you know, that we pay, for example, maybe a pair of glasses, the real cost is 200 bucks or whatever, and we're able to work a deal for 50, you know. Um, you know, we, we can... We we look at that that full amount as sure. what we're able to gather. So we've raised, like I said, over three and a half million dollars over the past eighty one years of, um, you know, and this is the, the the fun part about this thing, or the probably the crazy part if you're a fundraiser is this is the only thing we do. Mm. Um, you know, we don't do other fundraisers. This is our sole um, fundraising event that we do. We work on it. We'll start working on next year's on July twentieth and. Uh, you know, it, it, there's a lot of work throughout the year. July is a blur for me <laughs> and for a lot of us. Uh, there's just so many things going on. But, you know, the real heroes in this thing are, you know, these kids that are playing in this game tonight. You know, they're going to, It's you know, it's supposed to be nice and hot here in the next couple of weeks. You know, they're out there. The, the thing that and you've been there, you broadcast the game. You know full well that this is not patty cake out there. These kids are mm-hmm. playing for real. And, uh, you know, they take it seriously. They know that it's not just a football game. It's an opportunity to help people. Uh, plus, a lot of them, it's the last time to put the pads on. So um, it gives them an opportunity to, to play one more time. There's been very little changes in the format over the years. There are a couple changes that we probably need to talk about for the game coming up on July 19th. That is the venue and uh, the two teams, how they're divided up. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Correct. The, the two teams are, it's a Metro uh, Erie County squad. We we tried, and, and you and I have had this conversation off here before, we tried so hard to maintain the city county um, because from a marketing standpoint, it's easier, obviously, and, mm-hmm. and from a rivalry. But, you know, once um, the school district in Erie closed Vincent and East and merged them up in the Erie High School and, and uh, in essence, just put one school in there, uh, then you have McDowell and Prep and, uh, you know, you only have four schools. Um, and Mercyhurst uh, on that side of the ball, uh, it's very difficult to, because we asked uh, uh, our teams are 33 players and um, 
you know, on each team. So it was very difficult to do that. So we had to mix it up a little bit. Uh, you know, we separated Prep and McDowell. So that'll be interesting. That'll revive that that rivalry and, and things like that. Uh, but it'd be a great, it's a great night. These, you know, most of the, you know, the kids just want to play football. They really don't care about that other stuff there. You know, some of, some of us adults get caught up in that stuff more than they do. Um, and the other big thing is we're playing this year at, um, at um, McDowell high school, Gus Anderson, uh, the Erie veteran stadium on 26th street is, is undergoing renovations. I actually stopped there the other day. I mean, it's quite a, an operation that got going there. They, they were not going to be uh, ready for us um, this year. So we, we had to put the game on the road. We've had a lot of requests for that over the years to uh, kind of move it around. And we've thought about it and uh, this gave us an opportunity to try it. If it's, um, you know, if we get a, a great response, which I, I hope we do, um, you know, maybe that's something we do, uh, you know, again, but uh, we're kind of backed into this one. We had a, we had to find a home for this year and, uh, the, the, the people out of McDowell, uh, Mark Becker and, and Bill Hall, the superintendent, have uh, been absolutely terrific and, and very helpful in, in helping us uh, do that. From a logistical standpoint, it's a lot of fun for me because I get to do it in a whole new place that I've never done it before. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I joke, I said, I, we, we've done it at the stadium so long, we could probably do it with our eyes closed. Sure. And, uh, you know, we, we don't have that. Uh, like the other day, we had to move the big glasses out. If you've ever been to the right. you uh-huh. see the big eyeglasses you know we had a we had to move those out of the stadium and take them out to mcdowell so uh, uh i guess a number of years ago when the stadium was refurbished before they didn't take the glasses out there i think general mclean and almost caused a riot because they wanted the glasses so you know we we made sure the glasses are on a truck and they're they're already out there so we're we're looking forward to that learned your lesson the public demands it yeah that's right well the kids did i mean that's a you know i don't know how long they've been doing as long as i can remember i've mm-hmm. been going to these games since i was a kid as long as i can remember they've run through those glasses so you know it's uh you know and now they like to do the somersaults and sure and i just close my eyes and hope nobody gets hurt coming out of the glasses but that's another story but i guess they but tickets are available at all northwest savings banks at uh at country fair obviously the night of the game uh, um we, you know we're looking forward to a fun night down there we have a lot of um we have a um, a very special guest is going to be with us for a game uh for our dinner on thursday night and also at the game ian malaseski who you're well familiar with, mm-hmm. with his story ian's uh, uh an outstanding young man who had not been for that horrible accident that he had in the rest of him. He would have played in last year's game. Hmm. Um, and he actually went down to Florida right before the game last year to begin his studies at the university of Miami. So we had an opportunity to call him and, and, uh, he, uh, was very kind and he's going to come up and, uh, um, and speak to our, our, our kids at the banquet on, on Thursday night and also be at the game on, on Friday and taking care of some of the pregame activities and some things at halftime as well. So um, he, he's an incredibly inspirational young man. And, and uh, I've been, I have not had a chance to, to meet him in person. I've talked to him on the phone quite a few times and this kid's just top notch. So uh, we're looking forward to that. That sounds great. Again, one more time where folks can purchase tickets. They're available at all the Northwest Savings Banks in Erie County, as well as country fairs. Uh, they'll they'll be available uh, right through game night, and uh, obviously at at the the gate itself. And you can also call the site center at four five five zero nine nine five, and they can help you with ticket information and banquet information. That sounds great. Doug White, game manager for the Save and I All Star Football Game, which will be July nineteenth this year at Gus Anderson at McDowell High School. Doug, thanks for taking some time to talk about the Save and I All Star Game.
Thanks, Q. I appreciate it very much. How you doing today, Mike? Good, Joe. Thanks for having me on the show. All righty. So, um, uh, Pennsylvania fishing boat, of course. You know, we see those uniforms around Erie all over the place because this is a, a very, very, um, and you know, I wouldn't say in, intense, but just a very popular um, thing to do is to get out on the boat, get uh, get fishing, and and you've got some special programs coming up here, including Fish for Free Day on Thursday. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, the the word intense is, uh, is maybe a little intense, like you said, Joe, but it's definitely, <laughs> this, this, this time of year is really popular. And, uh, you know, just the sheer volume of boaters that are out on the water, up on Lake Erie, uh, everywhere, everywhere across Pennsylvania, you know, I kind of look at it as everybody is out on the water right now. So, you know, throughout the year, you know, fishing is a it, it, it is a year-round activity. I mean, there's hardcore bass anglers that'll be out on the river as long as there's, you know, not big chunks of ice out there in, you know, in January and February. But for the rest of us, you know, we've got time off with the kids from school. We've got vac- vacation to burn, and we've got a Fourth of July holiday that falls nicely on a Thursday this week to, you know, to extend that weekend. So you've got everybody out there from the from the tournament, you know, bass fishermen to the water skiers to the kayakers and, and canoers that are just out for a little bit of a day trip. And so just the sheer volume of people throwing the jet skiers as well, you know, you've got the potential for some, some conflict there. So, mm-hmm. you know, then th- that's, you're, you, you've got just a lot of folks out there and that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. When I, when I say conflict that we'll get to, you know, the reason why we're interested in, you know, having more patrols and stuff out there in a minute, but let's, let's talk about the, the positive stuff. So we know people are going to be out gathered for those uh, family cookouts and barbecues and whatever else you like to do, oftentimes near the water, uh, up along the lake, up along the, at the local state park or county park. And so Fish and Boat Commission tries to make it easy and affordable for those folks. So we offer a couple of fish for free days. We know you might have people coming in from, let's say, Ohio, New York, or anywhere else. Could be someone who's lived in Pennsylvania their whole life and, and just never bought a fishing license. You want to introduce them to the sport, this is a great day to do it. Thursday, July 4th, fish for free. It requires no license, whether you're a resident or a non-resident. And uh, all you've got to do is, you know, just, con- just follow the regulations, including the seasons and the creel limits. So no license needed. Save you a few bucks. Uh, introduce somebody new. Maybe get, uh, you know, reintroduced if you're someone who, who's lapsed and hasn't fished for a few years. It's a great day to get, get back into the swing. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the, the forecast is looking decent so far. So uh, it would be a great way to, you know, kind of exercise those fishing muscles if, you, if you've had that rod looking lonely in the corner of your garage for a long time. Right. Uh, um, right. Got it. Gathering dust, <laughs> <laughs> gathering dust, or or uh, going out uh, with the kids, like you say. It's, there's a lot of free time. The you know you know a lot of people will be on the water. Uh, you know, in Presque Isle Bay or Lake Erie, or you know, of course, we have Canadota Lake and Pine Matuming Lake around here, and Edinburgh Lake. Um, you know, being being careful, especially if alcohol is involved, is a huge deal. Yeah, and we've got waterways conservation officers, you know, across the state. And while the 4th of July is a day off for for most other people, including myself, uh, here, you know, working for a state agency, the the, the folks who don't get the day off are the first responders in in all fields, whether that's the, the local police officer, the folks working at the emergency room at the hospital, and our, and our waterways conservation officers 
at Fish and Boat. The 4th of July uh, in, in, in the entire period surrounding it is an enhanced enforcement period. So this year, for um, about 11 years now, there's, there's a national effort which you know conservation uh, law enforcement agencies have been participating in, and it's called Operation Dry Water. So it's the idea there is, you know, you heard about, you know, hey, that's a dry town. You know, they don't serve alcohol there, no liquor licenses, et cetera. So we're playing off that word dry. Dry water means we don't want you to fish, or excuse me, we don't want you to, to uh, drink and boat. So if you're going to be boating, please don't drink and boat. Uh, if you are going to include alcohol in your plans, which, again, we're, we're not trying to ruin the fun or tell people you can't be responsible adults and, and enjoy a couple of beverages while you're out on the pontoon boat or whatever you plan on doing, kayaking uh, that day. However, you do need to be aware that the blood alcohol limit in Pennsylvania for operating any watercraft, whether that's a powered boat with the biggest engine you can find or an unpowered small little kayak, the blood alcohol limit is 0.08, just like you're, just like you're in a motor vehicle on, on the road. So if you are involved in some sort of incidents or we see signs of impairment, uh, you will be subject to not DUI, but BUI, boating under the influence. And the penalties for that can be some pretty hefty fines, um, you know, lack of boat. Uh, we'll, we, we could uh, revoke your boating privileges or in case of, uh, you know, the, the worst case scenario, somebody gets hurt uh, or potentially, you know, drowns or, or dies. And then you could be looking at imprisonment. So we just want people to be aware of that. Not out there to ruin the fun. Operation Dry Water, though, from 4th of July for the next, you know, basically the next week is it, while people are out and about in mass. You know, that's, that's when we're really out there looking for signs of impairment. So if you're going to drink and boat and it's, it's part, of the, part of the plan, designate a, bo- a, a designated boater, just like you would for a night on the town. Uh, have a designated boater for a day on the water. That you know that, that you're really bringing up a point that I had no clue on. Uh, yes, uh, I, I figured under powered conditions, yes, you've got a you 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 know that you, you know you would you would stay under the the point oh eight or whatever. I did not realize that the same the same law is subject to those that are on a rowboat, on a canoe, or a kayak. Let, it, it, beg, it begs the next question then. Uh, because again, this is the kind of weekend where people are hitting the sports stores, and you know, and dropping maybe five hundred bucks on a kayak. Um, is there a registration process for kayaks, uh, or where do, when do you have to start getting a, a license, even for the for the craft? Yeah. So so un- and, and I'll get we'll talk about registrations and launch permits, which is, I think, what you're asking there. And that's yeah. really it's a really simple process. OK. But to get back to your point about the BUI, yeah. uh, you know, alcohol, blood alcohol limit pertaining to the, you know, the unpowered crafts, the kayaks, the canoes. Yeah. I mean, even even a stand up paddleboard. OK, now think about it. We are all mm. sharing the water with powered crafts. So uh, it's also you know the same the same thing is true for uh if you're riding a bicycle on the road that's um you're you're sharing the road you're subject to the to those same set of standards as far as blood alcohol limit for you know DUI or BUI but the reason we're so concerned about it from our standpoint on the water is because people who are who are operating these unpowered crafts if you're not if you're not of sound mind if you're under the influence of a controlled substance and and we talk about alcohol 
blood alcohol level being, you know, the, the standard in which we judge. But uh, our officers will tell you, you know, everything is 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 out there from, you know, illegal drugs um, to prescription drugs and someone, you know, uh, having not not being uh, if, they're, if they're under the influence of a prescription, a legal prescription drug. Uh, our officers are, uh, you know, but but yet they have it mixed with some other sort of substance. You know, one mm. beer plus a couple of pills that normally you're not having a beer with. Now all of a sudden the effect is a lot different, and and you're under the influence. You could be along, uh, you know, kayaking along on a on a, a, a scenic water trail down a, a stream or a creek or along the lake, and all of a sudden you encounter a dam. And you know, some of these low head dams uh, are what we call, you know, they have this churning effect. And and often we we see many fatalities over the over the course of the years, you know, around dams when people aren't of sound judgment and and their reaction time is is lower and they're not seeing the warning signs and they approach a dam. It doesn't matter if you're on a you know a big powered boat or a small kayak. You're you're putting yourself and others in danger. And then think about the folks who have to come out and potentially rescue you too because of the you know you made that choice to to consume alcohol. So I think that's the reason why. You know, the, the law applies to both powered and, and the unpowered boats. Makes a lot now, of sense. Yeah, totally makes sense. Yeah. Yep. You mentioned how do I get how am I legal if I, you know, for these days you do. You can go you can go to, a, you know, a, a local big box sporting goods store um, and, and pick up a kayak package with, you know, the kayak, the paddle, the life vest, uh, you know, for three, four hundred bucks and you're out the door and. You know, you could you could drive theoretically from Walmart to uh, Lake Erie and, you know, be on the water within an hour or two sure. of that purchase. What you do need to realize is that if you have while there's no, you know, boating license in Pennsylvania, we do have we do have registrations and permits. So you have two choices. If you're if you're planning on using a public launch and we have more than 300 of them across the state, um, whether it's the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commissions or you're visiting a state park, which is uh, from the DCNR, you're going to need to have a launch permit at minimum. So if you want to use those public launch facilities, which makes it really easy and convenient, give yourself a place to park, give yourself a place to launch your boat, you've got to affix that, that launch permit. And they're about, uh, uh, 11, I think they're $12 through the Fish and Boat Commission, and um, you just it's a sticker. You put it on both sides of the of the unpowered craft and, and you're good to go. You can use that now for uh, you, you may also register the kayak. And if you register it as, a, as an unpowered vessel, then that also gives you the um, the ability to use, you know, along with the, the registration. You've got the privilege there for using the launch the public launches. Okay. And, and we're reciprocal. So whether you're using a Fish and Boat Commission launch access uh, point or a, a state park, you know, DCNR, we honor each other's launch permits.